Good morning. Today, Pastor Hank will start a new sermon series on the Beatitudes. And a few years ago, <clears throat> I wrote a series of poems, each based on one of the Beatitudes. I felt that these blessed people were beautiful and living in holiness, so I titled the series, The Beautiful Sacred. And the poems will be used in some way throughout the rest next few weeks as um, Hank preaches on the Beatitudes. The short poem I'm reading is an introduction to the series and thinks about the beautiful sacred as they live their lives. It is called The Beautiful Sacred Walk. I hope you can hear the little arrows in it that points to the Beatitudes. The Beautiful Sacred Walk. Walking the earth like peaceful trees, shading the ground like a mercy, like a comfort, home to small birds, food for hunger, persecuting no one in heart or hand. The beautiful sacred walk the earth. Hello? <laughs> That's always scary when you come up and the sound's following you on your way up. Uh, welcome. Good morning. We're so glad you're with us this morning. We're glad that you've chosen to join us in this celebration. Um, this Sunday is um, kind of, we're in the middle of something called Eastertide. Eastertide is something I've learned pretty recently about. Eastertide is the season between Resurrection Sunday and, and, and Pentecost Sunday. So what we celebrate in Eastertide is not only Jesus' appearance, but we celebrate by feasting. It's known as a season of feasting. And I love that, you know, before the cross, we remember Lent, and Lent is a season of sacrifice, it's a season of fasting, it's a season of holding on to God, right? And that lasts 40 days. But I love that even in the church calendar, God has designed it that the feast lasts longer than the fast. Because Pentecost and, 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 and Resurrection Sunday is 50 days. So this season of, of, of Eastertide is 50 days and Lent is only 40 days. And I think somebody in this room needs to hear it this morning that when God blesses us, the feast is not going to last as long. I mean, the feast is going to last even longer than the fast. Amen? That no matter what you're going through this morning, whatever darkness you're in, whatever light you're trying to hold on to, whatever fasting or sacrifice season you're in, the feast will last longer than that fast. Amen? Eastertide is also this reminder to celebrate more than Resurrection Sunday because our God is still risen. Amen? It's a celebration that death has been defeated. It's a celebration that our Father's kingdom has come. It's a celebration that the Holy Spirit, which lives within us, blesses us with a joy that the world cannot steal away. Amen? It's a celebration that light wins over the dark. It's a celebration that life over death is possible. It's a celebration that Christ our Savior is risen. He's risen indeed. But Eastertide is also the celebration and also this reminder that not only has Christ been risen, but the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's afforded to you. The writer to the Romans puts it like this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much. That in this world where it's easy to see darkness, you remind us the light is already shining. Lord, in ourselves where it's easy to see brokenness, you remind us that you desire to make and keep us whole. 
that in this world that we're so easy to see sin and destruction, you remind us that in your son we have life and life forevermore. So God, we come before you this morning grateful for the blessings of your kingdom, grateful for the teachings of your son, grateful for the proclamation that Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. So this morning, even as we gather to celebrate, Lord, we have heavy hearts. As late last night, we found out about the shooting in another place of worship. We pray for the, the person who lost his life. We pray that you give comfort and strength to their family. We pray that you give the doctors wisdom as they deal with the wounds of the people who are also affected. God, I also pray in that area in San Diego, Escondido, there was also a mosque that, that suffered arson. God, and right now in our country, there seems to be that there's darkness all around us, but help us to answer your call. Help us to be your light. Help us to shine for your glory. Help us to live in ways that when they see us, they glorify our Father in heaven. So Lord, be with your people and help us to be your people who shine everywhere we go. In your holy and precious name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'll be reading the first three verses. Um, the Beatitudes are commonly thought of as blessings. And, and the more I read this, I thought about how these are promises of the kingdom. Promises of the kingdom. So that's going to be our series. Uh, Matthew 5, we'll only be reading the first three verses. We begin 5-1. Also be up on the screen. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew presents himself as the teaching gospel. Matthew is very, very intentional to present Jesus as the one who teaches, the one who preaches, the one who heals, and the one who loves. Matthew, when he looks at Jesus, sees the Messiah of word and deed. This is important because everyone in his context expected the Messiah to come in power, expected the Messiah to win people over through military might, especially the Messiah to conquer the kingdom of Rome. But the irony in all this is that the earthly kingdoms always die. They always come and go. But here we are thousands of years later, billions of saved Christians later, and God's kingdom is still going forth. Amen? Amen. So the Messiah that Matthew presents is the one who teaches, is the one who looks at the word of God and not only proclaims that salvation is here, but he proclaims himself the salvation that's here. But he's also a God of action. He's the Messiah who heals. He's the Messiah who loves. He's the Messiah who looks at the people around him who were cursed by their culture. You see, before Matthew 5 and before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 4, there's a crowd that's gathering around Jesus. It's a crowd of the broken. It's a crowd of the poor. It's a crowd of the oppressed, the marginalized, the sick. It's everyone who in that culture, their society would have looked at them and says, you are cursed because you're broken. You're cursed because you're not healed. You're cursed and that's why we oppress you. Makes no sense, but that's what they did. But the great irony for me in all this is that we love to think that we're so much more progressive, that we've learned way more than the people back then. We're so much smarter than they are back then. But if we look and we realize that perhaps we do the same things. You see, they thought people back then were cursed if they didn't obey all of God's law. But how many of us live the same way? I have a friend, or I, I said in the first episode, I had a friend, and it's because I'm really not sure if we're still friends. And the reason is because when we were teenagers, his sister got cancer. And my old friend looked me in the eye and said, you know, she got that cancer because she's sinful. And I remember, you know, I'm a man of grace, but not at 17 years old. I was a little bit more fiery, you know? And that's why I'm not sure we're still friends, because I, I let him have it in the name of the Lord. 
Because for him, that was the only way he could rationalize his sister getting cancer. It was because she was sinful. We haven't progressed as much as we think we progress. And how many of us in this room, if we're honest, that when life gives us hardship, when our life is not what we dreamed it to be, or, or our job is not what we dreamed it to be, or our kids are acting out, or, or even our, our job isn't what we dream it to be, how many of us, instead of looking up to Jesus, look down upon ourselves and we say to God, this hardship is because I'm not good enough. This hardship is because I've sinned. This hardship is because I'm not trying hard enough. I'm struggling because, you know, God, I'm not living right. How many of us do the same thing that they did to the people back then? But praise God who sets us free, amen? That your hardship is not because of your sin. It's because our world is broken. That what you're struggling with is not because you're not good or you're not worthy. It's because you need God and that's okay. So many of us do the same thing that was done to the people back then. But what I love about our Jesus is he welcomes all of these children home. What I love about our Jesus, before you get to the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying to the broken, come and get healing. He's saying to those who are defined by darkness, come to me the light. He's saying to people who are all the way beaten down and oppressed by this world, come home. To the people that the world curses, Jesus blesses. To the people that the world leaves behind and calls the least of these, Jesus says, welcome home, my sisters and brothers. Come and enter into the kingdom of our God. Matthew, before, last week we talked about how before he got to the cross, Matthew puts in this, this, this end-time prophecy where Jesus is going to return in all his glory. It's a famous scene where Jesus returns in all his glory, and he separates all of us into the sheep and to the goats. And he looks at the sheep and he says, For I was hungry, and you fed me. For I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. For I was a stranger, and you invited me in. For I was naked, and you clothed me. For I was sick, and you cared for me. For I was in present and you visited me. And he looks at the faithful and he says, well done, good and faithful servants, come home. But in that famous scene, Jesus also then turns to the other side and he says to the goats, for I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. For I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. For I was a stranger, and you built a wall to keep me out. For I was naked and you didn't clothe me. For I was sick and you didn't try to care for me. For I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Matthew presents this, and it's not a coincidence that he puts it at the end of Matthew 25, right before Jesus goes to the cross. Because in Matthew, Matthew's presenting Jesus as a teacher, and the teacher wants us to know it's not just about us loving the least of these. Because when you look at Calvary's tree, and it's all pretty and, and, and white and, and, and purple right now, but when you remember Calvary's tree, it wasn't pretty because Jesus went to the cross not just to tell us to love the least of these, but on Calvary's tree, he became the least of these. On Calvary's tree, our Savior, the creator of the world, was hungry. He was thirsty. He was naked. He was kicked out of his own city of Jerusalem and crucified on the outskirts like a stranger, like a criminal. He was beaten so down. He was beaten down so much that he was sickly and, and couldn't even carry his own cross. He was imprisoned by Roman soldiers. Jesus wants us to love the people society leaves behind, not just because it's a good moral teaching, but because these are his people. This is what he became, and this is what he wants us to do. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is saying, this is who I want you to love. 
But after crucifixion comes the resurrection. And after the resurrection comes life. And Jesus wants you to be living the life that was his. So when we get to Matthew 5 to 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is simply saying, this is how I want you to live. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ushers in a blessing to the people that society call curse, to the weak, to the poor, to the marginalized, to the, to the oppressed, to women, to people that society didn't value. Jesus not only says, come home, he says, come home for you are blessed. This world might see you as worthless, but I came for you. This world might see you as broken, but I can make you whole. This world might see you as people that we can step on to get further and further, but not only will I pick you up, I will use you to be a blessing to your world. Come home. What I love most, though, about the Beatitudes, they don't only just begin this, 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 this series of how to live, but they start with promises. Everything that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, everything that Jesus did, he said, my father did already. But everything he preaches in these Beatitudes, they're just Old Testament scripture. You can find them in the Psalms. You can find them in Isaiah 61. A lot of times we look at Jesus, we're like, what great new teaching Jesus has. Jesus only taught what his father revealed already. We must hold on to that. When Jesus says, I and my Father are one, Jesus is only reteaching what they should ever know. This is the genius of Jesus. You hear me say this a lot because Jesus was a genius. I know it's shocking, but he was a genius. Jesus was not only a genius, he was a really good teacher. And every good teacher must start from a base of understanding. You know, I said this in the first service, and I had a kindergarten teacher, like, shaking her head until I got to the second part. So bear with me. The first part is no good kindergarten teacher would go in front of the kids and teach them the alphabet one day. And then they got it because they're all smart. And then they come back on Tuesday, and she goes, E equals MC squared. Kids will be like, what are you talking about? E don't even come before M. And how does C squared, what does that even mean? Now, I, I praise you. There's, there's some adults in this room who say, I don't even know what that means either. <laughs> but no good teacher will just teach kids and just dump it on them. You have to start from a point of understanding. So what we need to understand about these Beatitudes is not only is Jesus teaching stuff they already know, he's elevating it. He's starting from their point of reference. He's starting with verses they might have memorized as a kid to go to camp. Maybe they didn't have camp. But he started with verses they would have memorized and known, and he's going to add on a new meaning to it. And what Jesus does here is simply say, this is the core teaching that I want for my disciples. So you see, Jesus is not just about gathering the least of these. He's not just about gathering everyone he wants us to know. Remember what Matthew presents Jesus as, the teacher. Well, if you have a teacher, that means you got something to learn, don't it? Remember what Jesus, well, Matthew presents Jesus as the preacher. He's here to proclaim himself as the good news. And lastly, the healer and the lover of our souls. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, has, has been the core summary of Jesus' teaching ever since Matthew first put the word, whoever put the words on paper. A lot of people believe this is the core summary of Jesus' teaching to the disciples. So it's not just, oh, the sermons of Jesus, right? But the idea here is if you want to know what exactly Jesus thought, this is a good place to start. My African brother, St. Augustine, who I always love to shout out um, because, you know, he was one of the first people I read in theology who was black. Now, I know for some of you that's not a big deal because you watch TV shows with people who look like you. You read books with people who look like you. You go to movies and people look like you, right? But for some of us, we don't have people that look like us. So when, when I find out St. Augustine was black, I was like, yes, brother, you do well, you know? 
Now, we, we don't agree on this whole just war thing. You know, I think him and Constantine kind of mistaught the church, and we've been fighting for, I don't know, 1,700 years, you know? So I think he's wrong on that. So we got eternity in heaven. I'm going to prove him how he's wrong on that. But he does have a few things to teach us, right? And one of the things he said when he looked at Matthew 5 to 7, he says, this is not just the core teaching of Jesus Christ. If you really want to know who Jesus is and live like Jesus lived, this is what you must do. As brethren in Christ, now some of you are like, what's the brethren in Christ? That's us. We're Harrisburg brethren in Christ. Welcome. Shocking. I know. It's awesome. But as brethren in Christ... We have always viewed Matthew 5 to 7 as our canon within the canon. And what we mean by that is all scripture is God-breathed. But them red letters of Jesus, we're going to pay special attention to them. And what we meant by that is all scripture is God-breathed. But if Jesus said it, we're going to try to live it. And we're going to ask the Spirit our help. We're going to ask Spirit's help to, to help us live it because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. So this canon within the canon is beautiful, but the Sermon on the Mount is best understood, not just as little pieces and little pieces here and there, it's best understood as a composite picture of life in God's kingdom. And what I mean by that is it's a composite picture, which means that you can't just read one and separate it from the other. So for example, not many of us will, after church, go to eat, get lunch, take a bite and be like, you know what, I'm good right? Or maybe it's just me. I like to clean my plate, right? Most of you who went to see movies or uh, I asked people in the first service, but I think they thought I was like having an altar call or something or confessional. I said, how many of you went to see the Avengers movie? And everybody put their head down. Only three people raised their hand. And I'm not, I'm not here to confess anything or, or to proclaim any badness on anyone. It's okay to go see the movie. My whole point was simply this. Not many of us will go to a movie, watch 30 seconds of it and be like, you know what? I'm good. I got the whole movie. I took my bite of food. I'm full. I watched 30 seconds of this three-hour and two-minute movie. Not that I was counting. This three-hour and two-minute movie, you know, I watched 30 seconds of it. I'm good. But yet we do the same thing to the Sermon on the Mount. We cut it and chop it up. We don't read it as a whole. And we need to understand it's a whole picture. You know, if you're an artist and you're painting a picture and you just started, you put one brush stroke down, and I came, I said, man, that's beautiful. You just quit now, Right? It's a composite picture. You have to hold them as a whole. But what I love most about the Sermon on the Mount is it simply says this. Are you a follower of Jesus? Live like this. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not try to live like this. It's are you a follower of Jesus? This is what Jesus says. Live like this. Now, is that possible on our own? No. But it's okay. It's okay to need Jesus, amen? It's okay to need the Holy Spirit, amen? So why is it not possible to do it all by yourself? Here's the blessing that you have. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. The other blessing you have is when you look in the world around you, one of the things I love about us in the West here, you know, we have made Christianity a Western religion. It's all about the individual. But here's the weird part about that. Christianity is not a Western religion. It started in the East. So whereas we lift up the individual, Christianity is about all of us. For God so loved the world. We make it individual. We even make the Sermon on the Mount individual. You know, we sing, you know, you are the light of the world. It inspires a great song that I love, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But here's the truth. God doesn't just want your light. He wants our light. If all the lights were to go off in this room and I was up here with one light, that would be nice. But you know what would be a lot nicer? 
If the 75, 80, 100 of us in this room all had light and we could walk out together. The faith is always about us. It's always about the world. It's always about your sisters and brothers. It's never just about you. So when you say, how can I live these teachings of Jesus? Jesus says, it's the same thing I've done for thousands of years. I've left my Holy Spirit in you, and I've blessed you with sisters and brothers to help you. Because not only is it okay to need the Holy Spirit, it's okay to need one another. It's okay to lean on one another. Because here's the thing, if you've been a Christian long enough, I guarantee you, you've prayed and you've said, God, I don't know if you heard me. But there's a difference when you go before a sister or brother and you pour your heart out and you know they heard you. There's a difference between saying, God, I'm not sure if you're here. But then feeling the embrace of your brother and sister. It's okay to need each other because here's the thing, when you're weak, she might be strong. When you're doubting, he might be sure. When you're broken, he might provide healing. When you're in the darkness, she might shine the light. It's okay to need each other. And I know it doesn't sound American or Western, but it's okay. We don't follow America. We don't just live in the West, but we don't bow down to the West. We bow down to Jesus. And Jesus has said it's okay to need each other. So stop trying to do it on your own. So how do you live these teachings of Jesus Work on listening to the Spirit within, but work on leaning on your sister and brother. Amen? As I was looking through the last couple months and reading and preparing to, to go into these Beatitudes, I was struck by this idea that these are blessings that Jesus is pro proclaiming for people. But what I was struck more by wasn't just blessing he was proclaiming, but these were promises that God made in the Old Testament, that Jesus is making in the New Testament, that's lasted for thousands of years, and that's best billions of people. You hear me? That was quick. I said that quickly. You got to go with me. These are blessings that God made in the Old Testament, that Jesus is making in the New Testament, that has been blessing people for thousands of years. How many people? Billions of people. Jesus is calling his people and he's giving them promises of the kingdom. Why is this a big deal? In that culture, only gods were blessed. Only gods were blessed. And Jesus is looking at the poor. He's looking at the women. He's looking at the weak. He's looking at the marginalized. He's looking at the oppressed. He's looking at people who, who, are, who are suffering from, from terminal illness and maladies. He's looking at everyone that society would leave around. And he says, you think the gods are blessed? No, 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 no. You are blessed. And then even more than that, he says, come home and I'll use you to be a blessing. Now, I love that because, you know, we're, we're very progressive in America and in the West. You know, we're very smart. We're smarter than people back then. We're so much smarter than people back then that we don't elevate people who are rich and famous, right? We don't elevate people who are powerful, right? We don't make gods of, of the self and the individual, right? We're so much smarter than they were back then, aren't we? What the Sermon on the Mount reminds us is simply that we are to elevate God and God alone, that he is our God. He's worthy of our praise. But what we're also reminded of is the people that this world loves to elevate, God will someday humble. And that the humble of God, God will always elevate. Amen? And the Beatitudes is a word that the, the Greeks and the Hebrew, you know, I love, you know, when we read it, you know, it says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some people are translating to say that blessed means happy. And you know that's not enough because you're like, happy, happy are the meek? I, I can see how that works. Happy are the persecuted? That one's hard, you know? Happy are the peacemakers? Have you been to my family reunion? <laughs> so we know that happy falls short. 
And if you go back to the Hebrew, what they, what, what, what they translate that word was actually a word called Asherah. And Asherah means, oh, the blessedness. Right? Oh, the blessedness of the meek. Oh, the blessedness of the humble. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness of the peacemakers. But it was the blessedness of now. It wasn't just, oh, the blessedness of one day you will be making peace. Or one day you will be poor in spirit and then you'll get the kingdom. It's even right now. Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes, all Christians must live like this. We have this tendency to think, like, well, maybe this is for the good Christians. But what is a good Christian apart from Jesus Christ? Because we all need Jesus Christ. And if we all need Jesus Christ, then we can all be the good Christians. So that's good. So welcome. Because when Jesus proclaims these Beatitudes, it's for all of us to be doing. No one is set apart. No one doesn't have to try. In fact, it's not even about trying because you got the Spirit of God inside of you and the community around you. So you can do it. You can live to please God. But all of us have to do it. But the other thing is, just like it's not good to take one bite and know everything about the meal, to watch 30 seconds and know everything about the movie, to look at one brushstroke and know everything about the picture, we have to understand these Beatitudes together as one. All these characteristics are for all the Christians, right? So you can't be like, you know what, today I will work on being meek and humble. That sounds cool. Yeah, you can do that. But then next week comes, you're like, today I'll work on being persecuted. Oh, wait, that, that's tricky. You have to understand all of these together as one. It's a composite picture, and they're all together as one. So not only do all Christians have to be like this, all of these characteristics applies to all of us. So it's not just, I'm not saying we're not persecuted, or we're persecuted like the way the persecuted church is. But it does mean that we're all one together. Why? Because we're all one body. So it's not even that the persecuted church is persecuted, it's that we are persecuted if they're truly our brothers and sisters, when they're killed for their faith, we're killed for our faith. But praise God, the gospel still goes forward. It means that when, 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 when they're hurting, we're hurting. When someone cries, you cry. When they celebrate, you celebrate because we're one. So these Beatitudes says all these are for all the Christians and every single characteristic is for all of us. The Greeks try to explain this and instead of asherate in the Greek, they had a word called makarios. Makarios, William um, um, Barclay says this. Makarios then describes the joy which has a secret within itself. The joy which is serene and untouchable. The joy which is self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes in this life. The Beatitudes speak of Makarios, that joy which seeks us through our pain. That joy which seeks us through sorrow and loss. That joy which seeks us through pain and grief. That joy which is, is, is we're powerless to touch. But that joy which shines through our tears and which nothing in this life or even death can take away. That's a little bit more than happy, isn't it? Oh, the blessedness of the meek. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness to know the joy that life cannot touch. The divine joy that your circumstances cannot undermine. The divine joy that this world and the foxes in the vineyard, as my black brother Augustine said, they'll never steal your joy. That's what Jesus says when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the joy the world cannot take away. One writer says, you know, this joy they're speaking of is what the Jewish understood as shalom. So it's not just peace. It's a joy that so fills you that you have peace with God. 
that you have peace with your sisters and brothers, that you have peace with the world around you. That's the joy that Jesus is speaking of when he says, oh, how blessed are the meek. Oh, how blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, how blessed are my children in this kingdom. The thing I think I love the most about the Beatitudes is something that I learned from the Lion King. I don't know how old I was when that movie came out, but it was theologically one of the strongest movies I've ever watched before The King of Egypt. Now, I don't know which, which service we're recording, but let's use this one. Because in that one, I said, Disney made The King of Egypt, and apparently I'm wrong. It was DreamWorks, which makes sense, because it was a very theologically strong movie. They actually got, like I think, over 100 different theologians to, to put together The King of Egypt. It was a great movie. You should watch it tonight. You'll love it. Great soundtrack, too. But what I learned more from The Lion King was that scene where Simba is trying to find himself. Something we sometimes struggle with, identity, isn't it? Trying to find our place in the world. What are we supposed to be doing? And he's living that Hakuna Matata life, right? Means no worries for the rest of your days. Until life changes happen, and he's tracked down, and he's trying to figure out who he is, and he goes before the water, and he sees a shadow of his, his father, and, and in that deep voice that has been in my head for 30 years now, James Earl Jones, it says, remember who you are. And I love that because I think what the Beatitudes scream to us in James Earl Jones' voice, in my head anyway, it says, remember who you are. I think in this world where people are searching for identity, where people are searching for what does God want me to do, where people are searching for how do I live to please God, I think Mufasa can help us and just say, remember who you are. But I edited Mufasa a little bit, and I think it's also important to remember whose you are. Because when I say remember who you are, that's followers of Jesus. And here's the crazy thing about following Jesus. The wild thing about following Jesus is you actually have to do what? Follow Jesus. It's not just a badge you get to wear. You actually have to follow what he says. You have to follow what he asks you to do. You have to live like he's called you to live. Remember who you are, a follower of Jesus. So that means you're going to submit to him as your Lord and King. But when I say remember whose you are, it's a reminder that this world doesn't get the last word, that this world doesn't own you, Amen. that this world has nothing on you because you're not only more than conquerors, you don't only know the power of victory over death, you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you, you have a Father who so loves you. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. The Beatitudes then invite us into the presence of God and how to respond. And that's interesting because for a lot of us, when we think about the presence of God, we think about our quiet space. And you can experience God there. We think about church. I hope you can experience God there. But here's the thing. God made the world. God's over all of the world. God is everywhere at any time, every time. So where is the presence of God? Everywhere. So what the Beatitudes is reminding us is not just when the God is going to show up in our quiet time, is that when we're walking through this life, every single breath that we take, God's presence is available to us, and this is how we should react to a God who's all over us, all over this world. And that points us to simply this. The Beatitudes is not the way of salvation. It's the way of life. 
The recipe hasn't changed. The formula is still the same. The Holy Spirit is still the one that convicts and calls us to our sin. Jesus is still the one who went to the cross and died for your sins. The Father is still the one who made the plan for salvation and raised them from the dead. God is the one who saves. But if you choose to follow Jesus and you want to walk to follow Jesus, then the Spirit is going to invite you to say, this is the way of life. How blessed are we. Oh, blessed is the one who has realized their own utter helplessness and puts their whole trust in God. We get the blessed are the poor in spirit. One, one writer said this is a foundational beatitude. And what he means by that is simply this, you know, most of us who build houses, that's like one person probably, right? But if you live in a house or you've ever been in a house, you know that the foundation comes first. You don't, you, don't, you don't build the roof and then put the foundation on top of it. The foundation comes first. So when they say this first beatitude is the foundational principle, they're literally saying this is where everything is going to be based on. But also, also, this is not only where it begins, but this is where you must let God begin. One of my favorite people in the world right now is an artist out of A. Leaf, Houston, Texas. And, and he has this beautiful line where he says, you know, it's hard to take the blessings of God when your hands are full. And there's many of us walking around with full hands. Full hands because of life. Full hands because of our situation. Full hands because of our hardships. Full hands because the world's not as it should be. But if you want this foundational blessing of the poor in spirit, you have to empty your hands to receive what God wants to give you. Amen? Amen. The poor in spirit, though, are more than simply poor. I love the liberation theologians. Gustavo Gutierrez, one of my favorite people in the world, changed my faith, changed my life. But a lot of the liberation theologians fall short. Because they, they, my English teacher would not be happy. Ms. Bivens would not be okay with this, right? They cut the phrase in half, you know? So they stop instead of poor in spirit, and let's figure out what it means to be poor in spirit. They say, blessed are the poor. And as someone who's been poor, that's a hard thing to hear. Blessed are the poor. Is it truly a blessing that I'm in a refugee camp? Is it truly a blessing that war has taken my family members, including my father, is it truly a blessing that in this country you love so much and elevate so much, I will always be the least of these? Is it truly a blessing to be poor? Now, don't get me wrong. There's wonderful lessons we can learn from the poor. We can learn about resourcefulness. We can learn about trusting God. See, it's different to thank God for the food, and it's another thing to pray God for the next meal. It's different to say, God, I believe in you. And it's another thing to say, God, it's only you can make a way or I'm not having any day tomorrow. There's lessons we can learn from the poor. But what Jesus is saying here is not you're blessed because this world has made you poor. It's not you're blessed because your situation is terrible. It's not you're blessed because you don't have what everyone else has. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the poor in spirit. Now, who are the poor in spirit? Well, first of all, they're not simply poor. In fact, if you go back to the Jewish understanding of poverty, and then when you see poor in scriptures, it, it evolves. 
I don't know much about other languages, but I think I kind of know English a little bit. And in English, our words evolve. You know, you might see a word that you say in 2019 that probably didn't mean the same thing in 1919. That might not mean the same thing in 1619. Words evolve over time. So when you see poor in the Bible, it's not automatically poverty. In fact, it, it could be any one of these four, so good luck. The first one, it means you're poor. Poverty. But that comes with no power, no influence, and no prestige. But then over time, it, it evolves to being not only being poor and poverty, but having no influence. But now you're downtrodden and you're oppressed. And then it evolved a little bit more to now it means one who has no earthly resources, but puts their whole trust in God. And that's the poor in spirit Jesus is speaking of. And that's the poor in spirit we need to be reminded of. Because in this world that elevates pride, God calls us to be humble. In this world that elevates self-reliance, self-assurance, God calls us to complete reliance on him and him alone. In this world that says, you know what, you can do it, God says, come to me, we can do it together. In this world that says it's all about you, God wants you to care about your sisters and brothers. In this world that says it's all about you getting ahead and worrying about me and mine, God said, no, it's about us. It's about us. The poor in spirit are the humble who don't celebrate the prestige and privilege that comes from their family. The humble, the poor in spirit are not the ones who celebrate having power or even elevate those who have power as if they're good because they have power. The poor in spirit are the ones who don't just celebrate nationality in a great country, whatever that means. The poor in spirit are not the ones who celebrate wealth because they're rich and life is a little bit easier. They don't celebrate and elevate their education above everyone else. They don't celebrate even their skills, their gifts, their abilities to make some other people feel bad about it. They don't elevate their socioeconomic status or any kind of status. What did the poor and humble do? They said, yes, I will celebrate my family, but my family is not just the people who share the same blood. My family is everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and that the blood that flowed on Calvary's tree is always going to matter than even the blood that flows in my veins. That's who the poor in spirit celebrate. They celebrate power, not as the world celebrates it, but as Jesus celebrates it. I love charity's prayer. And it's a reminder that our God had this divine inheritance and he laid it down for dusty roads, for leaky boats, for men that ran away from him. Praise God for the women who were faithful. But that's what our God did. He lays down his power in even a culture that elevated military might, we don't know anything about that. Even in a culture that elevates political power, we don't know anything about that. Even in a culture that thought what you saw was all that was, we don't know anything about that. Even in that culture, Jesus says, when I come as Messiah, it's for my Father's kingdom. The poor in spirit don't celebrate being Liberian or just being American. They celebrate their citizenship in heaven. But more than that, they work for all the other citizens of this world. It's not just about saying, I'm going to heaven. And it's not even just about saying, we're going to heaven. It's about God has us here to love this world as he loves the world. 
the poor in spirit don't celebrate all their blessings or their wealth. They use it to bless others. Because when God and Jesus gathered everybody on the mountainside and gave them this sermon on the mount, this teaching, it was what? I am blessing you to go and be a blessing. And that's the call he gives all of us. The poor in spirit might love education, but they're not going to take the privileged education and, and look down upon people who don't have the same education or the same opportunities. The poor in spirit are not just going to be like, I'm blessed. I have all these skills, gifts, and abilities. They're going to be thinking and praying for God to help them use those skills, those gifts, those abilities to bless others. The poor in spirit eschew their privilege. They run away from any kind of privilege this world gives them, and they crucify that privilege for the sake of those who have none. The poor in spirit then have come to a place where it's not just by humility, but they've come to a place where they realize that the things that don't last don't deserve my allegiance. The things that die on and will wilt and, and, and be burned in the fire don't deserve my life. That's who the poor in spirit are. And the way they do this is by relying on God for everything. Blessed is the one who has realized that their own help, utter helplessness and who has put their whole trust in God. To be poor in spirit is to be humble. To be poor in spirit is to empty yourself of everything this world values and to fill yourself with what Jesus values. To be poor in spirit is to realize that if God is all over this world, I'm always in the presence of God. And when I get to the presence of God, I'm utterly helpless. Notice I said helpless and not worthless. We're helpless when we realize that only through God we can do anything. We're helpless when we realize only through God are we blessed. We're helpless when we realize that only through the power of God can we be saved. But we are never worthless. No matter what this world tells you, you are never worthless. For you are still a daughter of the king. For sure, you're still the son of God most high. You're still loved by God. You're still the one he created this world for and he's working on heaven to make perfect for. You're still the one he lived this life to show you how to please God. You're still the one he went to the tree and died on the cross for your sins for. You're still the one that God raised him from the dead to tell you that whatever darkness you're in, God's light is greater. Whatever brokenness that's inside of you, God's healing is greater. Whatever struggle you're in, God can carry you through. Amen? Amen. You might be utterly helpless before God, and that's a good thing when you realize you need God, you need the Spirit within, you need your community around you, but you are never worthless, for God so loves you. The poor in spirit teach us that it's not about the things that don't last. I love my family. They're not going to last forever if they don't know Jesus Christ. I love this church, but not as much as God loves all of his children. I love being pastor of this church, but that's not going to last forever. I'm not going to lie. For as much as I critique America, I love the privilege of being an American. But that's never going to matter more than my citizenship in heaven. I love that, yes, I've known poverty, but I love that I don't know poverty anymore. 
But that's not even going to last. Because here's the sad truth about our country. We're all one major accident from probably poverty anyway. Start saving people. And I love my education. I love that it's given me more tools in the tool belt to help me understand and, and, and see God in new ways. But there's going to be some day where I probably won't even remember my name. I love the skills, gifts, and abilities I've seen God put in me and help me to help other people with. But it might be a day where those don't even count anymore, where I can't even do the things I used to do. Don't put your treasure and your heart and your life in things that don't last. Put them in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is calling to in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How blessed are we to know a joy that's a shalom that the world cannot touch? How blessed are we to empty ourselves consistently every single day, empty ourselves of the things the world values so that we can be filled with the things of God? The poor in spirit teach us four things. The first one is they move us from saying Jesus is Lord to Jesus is my Lord. Now, I will tell you, the whole faith is about us as a community. But every knee has to bow, and every tongue has to confess, and every Christian has to follow Jesus. It's not enough for you to say, Jesus is the Lord of this world. It's not even enough for you to say, Jesus is our Lord. But everything you say, everything you do, every breath you breathe, you have to submit to Jesus as your Lord. Everything in your life has to come in submission to Jesus. Your words, your actions, your thoughts, your resources, your skills, your gifts, your abilities, your heart, your children, your family, your church. Everything in your life has to always come in submission to Jesus, which is why Jesus will forever ask you, am I your king? Am I your Lord? Are you willing to submit to me even in this? The poor in spirit, by emptying themselves and only being filled by God, ask us, are we willing to always and in all things say, Jesus is my Lord? The poor in spirit also invite us to look at Jesus. One of the greatest blessings that Jesus gives us is teaching us how to live in a way to please God. Jesus, the, 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 the disciples didn't just collect these stories to say, these are great moral teachings. Or these are great things that you need to know. They wrote these stories because God wants you to be changed. The thing I love about Christianity is it's transformational. Not only does our God say, come as you are, but he says, I will complete the work I've begun in you. So it's not just coming into the doors. It's submitting to God so you can not only look at Jesus, but you can look like Jesus. And that's very, very important. Because since the Jesus went to heaven to get it perfect for you, he's left his spirit and he's left the church. So when we say you might be the only Jesus the world might see, it's not just a bumper sticker, it's reality. And it's not something Jesus instituted, it's something the Father instituted in the Old Testament because when he said to his people, I want you to be my kingdom of priests. That's the same call that we have even in the New Testament. Peter calls us what? A royal priesthood. That means just like the priest who goes before God and the people and connects the two, that's what you're meant to do in your families, in your schools, in your workplaces, with your friends, and the people you see around the street. You are a kingdom of priests. 
So when we say you're the only Jesus they might see, yeah, it's a hard responsibility. You might not even want the responsibility to be honest, but it's okay. Why? You have the Spirit of God living in you. You have your community around you. And if you lean on those two things, you can be the kingdom of priests. Your God desires, and there's the thing, the kids in school might start acting a different way. Your family might start believing something different. Your job might get a little bit of light in the middle of all that darkness or business reports. Your family, your people you walk with on the street, they will see that light in you. Don't just look at Jesus. Look like Jesus. You know, the Brethren in Christ years ago came up with our core values, and I learned something new. I thought I was done learning my sermon altogether. But one of the things they did is they gathered a group of, I think, 60 people to, to not just look at the canon within the canon, but to say, who are we as brethren in Christ, right? Who are we? What are these core values that we hold on to? And I learned maybe an hour ago, Pastor Woody was one of those 60 people who gathered. So I never knew that. But what I was thinking about these Beatitudes, I was reading them. If these are promises of the kingdom, if these are blessings that God wants his people to have, if this is how God wants us to live, is there a marriage between some of these BIC core values? And I found a lot of marriage. So I don't know if the Beatitudes was part of their study, but I think the spirit is wonderful. And what happens with this poor in spirit is this, this emptying of yourself, is this utter humility, is this not valuing what the world values, is being poured into by God, is getting to this point where you say, I don't care about the things that fade. I only care about the things that last. I don't care about what the world values. I only work for what God values. It comes to this core value to BIC have of relying on God. It says, we confess our dependence on God for everything and seek to deepen our intimacy with him by living prayerfully. The poor in spirit are those of us who are willing to confess our utter helplessness, our complete dependence on God and God alone for everything. But then we're also willing to do the work of deepening our intimacy with him through prayer. And prayer is a conversation and for some of us, we talk a lot, and that's not a conversation. A conversation means the other person got to say something too, right? At least once in a while, so you know they're there, right? But that's how relationships grow, isn't it? They grow in conversation. When, they, when the conversation gets to, to this intimate point, you grow. And when you get to that intimate point, you start sharing who you are, and you start sharing about each other, and you start growing together. And that's what prayer can do. If we come before God and say, this is me, and I'm utterly helpless before you, I'm completely dependent on you, Spirit, speak to me, then you can grow in that intimacy with God. The poor in spirit call us to rely on God. But more than that, Jesus calls us to be the blessed who are poor in spirit, who are willing to empty ourselves to be filled by God and God alone. Amen? I'd like to call up Pastor Esty and the worship team. We're going to close by um, singing one of my favorite songs, actually. Jesus paid it all. And in these simple words we sing, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. These blessings, these promises of the kingdom are promises that Jesus made to resurrect the people. I'd like to invite the intercessors up. We'd love to pray for you for whatever you got going on or whatever you need prayer from. We'd love to pray for you. If there's any pastors in the room, please come up. We'd love to pray for you as well. But as we sing, Jesus paid it all, may we be reminded that Jesus calls the blessed, the poor in spirit, the humble, to not only empty themselves, but to celebrate that he paid it all so that you can have it all. Amen? Let's sing together. Please stand.